Welcome back to the swamp my friends and welcome if you are new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true outdoors horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. Today I'm not feeling that great. I know I might sound chipper as always but I'm just feeling very under the weather. So today joining me reading one of these stories will be my good friend Charles. I've known him a very long time. He does audiobooks over on Audible and I think he has a great voice that you'll enjoy. But, of course, I will be reading a few of these stories myself. So thank you guys for understanding. Be sure to slap that like button if you haven't. Be sure to subscribe if you're new. And get ready for some creepy and allegedly true outdoors horror stories. Oh yeah, if you want to send in your own story, send it in at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. The Haunted Woods by Anonymous. When I was around 15 years old, my friends drove to a place that was haunted. There were plenty of them around the basin where I lived. It was getting close to Halloween, so as is tradition, we were all trying to scare each other. First, we went to a place called the Haunted Woods. This is an actual business, not a place in the woods. Then, we went to an abandoned hotel near the Ute Reservation. Nothing significant happened there. We didn't see or hear anything, and we were just gooping around having fun. Then the driver said we were going to Skinwalker Ranch. Now at the time I had never heard of Skinwalker Ranch, but I had heard plenty of stories of Skinwalkers. I was initially intrigued, but as we dropped down the hill behind the property, a feeling of total dread settled on me like a heavy blanket. Everyone in the car got increasingly quiet, like they were feeling the heaviness too. I don't think we should be here, I spoke softly. Oh, we're gonna be here, the driver announced. There's no moon tonight and there's no flashlights allowed, he continued. I'll just stay in the truck then. I've got a horrible feeling and I just don't want to go, I spoke again. You aren't staying in the truck alone. Now get out, he said rudely. I got out of the truck and looked over at my best friend. Her face was white and her eyes were wide and round, and I knew she felt the same way I did. We should not be here. My friend driving the truck said this was a vast ranch and we were at the back end of Skimwalker Ranch. I wouldn't have believed him that this was Skimwalker Ranch if I didn't feel that every nerve in my body was telling me to leave. He walked over to an old post in a pole fence, undid the wire loop holding up a small gate, and laid it on the ground. There was an overgrown two-track road leading up into the darkness, and we followed him. As he led us up, the horrible feeling of dread was almost overwhelming, and I felt like I would be sick at any moment. I wanted to return to the truck but feared something would pounce on me if I left the group's safety. We weren't laughing and joking here. The heaviness weighed on us, and we walked silently through the dark. As we walked, I tried to keep my eyes on my feet, but I occasionally glanced to either side of the two-track road. I saw a vast black mass in the tall grass each time I did this. I told myself it was just a cow, but each time I looked it was in the same spot off to the left, following our journey to the old homestead. Finally the driver and the leader of our foolish expedition stopped and said we were almost there. They said that we needed to stay extra quiet in case the owners were around. As he turned to start walking again, a growl leaped from the darkness and he stopped and stepped back. He wasn't our fearless leader anymore. His voice shook as he told us that it was time to go back to the truck. 
We walked a little ways back and then one of our group members said that they needed to use the bathroom. We stopped by a small stream running along the south end of the property. I was smoking a cigarette and talking to one of my friends about how relieved I was that we were leaving. I glanced down at the stream at the same time my friend did, just in time to see a black figure emerging from the water. It was not a cow, it was not a coyote. It looked like a too skinny, too tall man. We both screamed and ran back to the road, and that was the last straw for everyone in the group. We all ran all the way back to the truck. Now I know that this is eerie but uneventful. Have no fear, my story is not over quite yet. A few months later, I had started to convince myself that this was nothing more than just some coincidences and I had freaked myself out or something. It could have just been cows or something different. Who knows, maybe they were just... Maybe my eyes were just playing tricks on me, making me see things emerging from the water that wasn't actually there. My best friend came to my house to sit outside, BS, and smoke some cigarettes. We did this quite often. Like I said in my previous story I've sent into the swamp, we lived in the middle of nowhere, so dumb things like this were about as much fun as we could have, really. I lived in the middle of nowhere with trees and woods and fields everywhere. So we were sitting in her car just across the road from my house. Her car points toward the town park about a block away, in a really unkempt baseball field in the center, if you can even call it that. It's more of like some dirt. There aren't really any other houses around here, at least none that can see the park directly aside from mine. You can see everything up to where the street lights are, and after the entrance of the park, there are no more lights. Oh, look, a deer, my friend says suddenly. I could see glowing eyes on the very far end of the park. Oh yeah, there it is, I reply. We watch as it slowly walks toward the center of the park. In the spot is a huge metal slide jungle gym type thing. It's probably like 10 feet tall. But like I said, this park is so old, it's hardly a thing. It's so rusted out. As the deer is walking, I notice that for some reason, I can't make out any features of the deer. It was just out of reach of the street light. The deer is right next to the slide when suddenly, this thing stands up on its hind legs. The eyes were watching. They were looking right at us, we could see the glow. This deer was easily 10 to 12 feet tall on its hind legs. Then it starts to walk, standing on its hind legs. Me and my friend both start panicking. What the heck is it? That's not a deer. We kept watching this extremely tall creature across the park when my friend decided we were driving up there. She locks the doors and we head towards the park in the car. When we were almost there, the eyes crossed the street and entered the neighborhood across from the garden. By the time we got there, whatever it was had vanished and was now long gone. Another few months went by, and this event had truly rattled us. We were not convinced that it was a deer. While deer are known to go on their hind legs sometimes, it's really not for this long, you know? Why would they walk, and how, how is this thing going to be 10 feet tall? One night, I was at my friend's house, the same one from the previous encounter. This friend lived smack dab in the middle of enormous farmland. All around her were pastures. It was very peaceful most of the time. We had spent the night watching movies and hanging out. I went outside, started my car, and we smoked a little bit together on her porch before I left. We were chatting when suddenly her eyes went to my face and looked behind me, and her eyes grew wide. I turned to look to see two glowing red eyes just past the fence line into her neighbor's pasture. What the hell is that? I managed to squeak out. I don't know, she whispered back. The eyes remained fixated on us for about 30 seconds, then turned and disappeared. 
We both ran back into the house. I didn't dare go home for another 45 minutes. Luckily, I was able to get into my car and get home safely. But every time we talk about this, it gives me goosebumps to this day. I don't know what's on that ranch that we went to. I don't know if something followed us home from there. But I'll tell you what. Don't play around on Skimwalker Ranch. I had always loved the outdoors, but I never imagined that a simple hike in the woods would turn into a nightmare. It was a beautiful summer day, and the sun was shining brightly as I embarked on my solo adventure. Little did I know that this serene forest would become a labyrinth, a twisted realm that would test the limits of my endurance and sanity. I ventured deeper into the woods, following a trail that seemed well-trodden at first. The rustling of leaves and the chirping of birds created a symphony of nature, soothing my mind as I absorbed the tranquil surrounding. Time seemed to pass quickly as I immersed myself in the beauty of the wilderness. As the hours ticked away, I realized I had gone farther than I intended. Panic began to set in, and I quickened my pace, hoping to find my way back. But the dense foliage and the unmarked path disoriented me further. Each step became more treacherous as the sun began its descent, casting long, ominous shadows through the trees. My throat became dry, and a gnawing sensation of thirst consumed me. I realized that I had not brought enough water for such a prolonged hike. The forest, once my sanctuary, now transformed into a hostile entity, trapping me within its clutches. My desperation grew with every passing moment. With waning strength, I stumbled upon a small clearing. A glimmer of hope ignited within me as I spotted a stream nearby. I rushed towards it, imagining the sweet taste of water quenching my parched lips. However, as I reached the stream, my heart sank. The once flowing water had reduced to a mere trickle, barely enough to wet my lips. I sank to my knees, defeated and exhausted. The sun had now disappeared, leaving the forest in complete darkness. My vision blurred and my body trembled as dehydration tightened its grip. The haunting cries of nocturnal creatures echoed through the trees, mocking my feeble state. Just as I was about to succumb to despair, a flicker of light pierced through the darkness. My weary eyes strained to see, and to my disbelief I spotted the faint glow of a flashlight in the distance. The sound of footsteps grew louder, and with renewed hope, I summoned the last ounces of my strength and cried out for help. As if an answer to my plea, a search and rescue team emerged from the shadows. Their faces were etched with concern as they rushed to my side, offering me water and a reassuring smile. The cool liquid cascaded down my throat, reviving me with each precious drop. They explained that they had been alerted to my disappearance and had tirelessly searched the forest, guided by the faint sound of my voice. Tears of relief and gratitude welled up in my eyes as I realized that I had narrowly escaped the clutches of death. Since that fateful day, I never venture into the wilderness without ample supplies and a newfound respect for nature's untamed power. And as I recall the ordeal, I shudder knowing that the woods have claimed the lives of those who were less fortunate. I remain forever grateful for the search and rescue team who, in the nick of time, plucked me from the clutches of an unforgiving forest. 
Seven kids have gone missing in my town in the last three decades. I was a part of the search party for the seventh. This is our story. The child's parents had left him in the care of a neighbor while they ran to the gas station, and the neighbor, an elderly woman, could not keep up with the boy while they played. So she eventually sat to rest. The boy, not at all tired, wanted to keep up playing, but the old woman was exhausted and told him to wait until his parents returned. He asked if he could play with her husband, who lay in bed upstairs, but she said no, explaining to him that her husband was very tired due to his age, like she had become. As any seven-year-old would, the boy found this answer unacceptable and fled to the backyard, hoping to find something or someone to play with. He didn't return. The old woman, whose name was Margaret, had fallen asleep in her living room. She was stirred awake by the sound of the doorbell and shambled over to the front door. Awaiting her there were the boy's parents, whom she greeted, and then remembered that she had been charged with looking after their son. The sudden remembrance, which dawned plainly on the woman's face, brought an immediate worry to the faces of the parents. And the trio began to call out for the boy. Their shouts fell on deaf ears though, the boy was long gone. I was one of the volunteer searchers, and the particular group I had accompanied was tasked with searching the nearby woods. By the time people had gathered and the police had arrived, it was nearly nightfall, so some of us had to push through the trees and vegetation blindly. A surprising amount of people did not own flashlights. I was one such person. I did bring my father's emergency flare gun which he thankfully never had to use during his boating days. Normally inadvisable, considering I'd be surrounded by vegetation, but I figured it would be useful if my group discovered the boy, hopefully alive. I stumbled over roots, pushed through brambles which tore my shirt and cut my skin, and trampled flowers unidentifiable in the gloom. The moonlight shone dimly through the trees whose foliage had formed a natural ceiling over the woods. Eventually, Expectedly, I became separate from my search group, lost amidst the unrecognizable flora. Panic crept into my mind, but I figured that with dozens of other people out searching for the boy, I was bound to come across someone. And pushing past panic was the hope that maybe the boy had stumbled through these parts of the woods as well, and I'd be the one to find him. Then, as if to assuage my fears and affirm my hopes, I saw a figure a few meters ahead, leaning against a tree. My heartbeat was faster when I saw that. He was not all that tall, about the size of a boy even. I jogged towards him, but when I grew close enough to see his face, he ran off. I chased after, calling out the boy's name, Adam. It started to rain. I sloshed through the mud which had minutes ago been easily traversable ground. My progress hampered considerably. I could still see the boy ahead, but he grew smaller, fainter, and even though I tried to power through, I felt myself succumbing to the thickening mud. It became like a quicksand, restricting my entire body, resisting my most strenuous exertions. It was too late when I remembered that I was probably quickening my sink with my struggles. Seconds later, I was up to my chin. I'd apparently stumbled upon some deep depression in the earth. 
Forgetting the flare gun in my pocket, I tried calling out, but the rain fell loudly, drowning out my screams as I drowned in that sinkhole. Darkness rushed in, and all became black. I emerged elsewhere. The earth vomited me forth like a squelch, as if expelling something indigestible. The rain was gone here, and the environment was illuminated by several distinct rays of moonlight, as if this place were watched over by a trio of moons. The trees were different as well. They towered incredibly high, their tops piercing the gray cloudage above, as if rising to greet the triple lunar vanguards. Grass rose as tall as men in some places, while other areas were barren, some sunken in, others raised in mounds of dirt. I progressed forward from the position I'd arrived, hoping that if the boy had come here, I'd find him, and if not him, a way to escape. The hole from which I had arisen had smoothed over, leaving no signs of being impregnable. I eventually came across something resembling a path. At the start of this path, to my horror, was a massive coffin that towered nearly as tall as the great trees I'd seen earlier. The coffin's lid was open, and it gave off a strange, sinister impression. It seemed hungrily anticipatory, as if it awaited a soon-to-arrive occupant. I gave it a wide berth as I passed, and nothing sprung out of it to attack or draw me in. I came across other caskets, all of which seemed as they were built for titans. Trees not as tall as the others, but still massive in their own right, had grown through the caskets. Throwing the lids off but obscuring any signs of the occupants, if there were any. Great bows pierced through the frame of the casket, giving the trees the appearance of wearing polished wooden armor. As I progressed down the coffin-flanked path, the funerary housing became degraded, more noticeably withered by time, and the trees which grew through them became significantly more prominent, until, at the final tree, the only observable presence of the casket were its splinters which stuck in with what seemed like grim defiance to the trunk of the tree. This tree was as tall as the others I'd initially seen. Something about it perhaps its age and disregard for the casket through which it had grown, saddened me. There was also a vague, unplaceable familiarity about the casket shards, as if I'd somehow seen them or inexplicably knew of their occupant before coming here. The path lined with casket-infused trees ended seven in total, and opened to a massive swampish area. In the center of the mire was a massive pool, which over hovered a soft white mist. Despite the locale, I could hear no bugs or bog-inhabiting creatures, and the water surface was at a complete rest. I approached the pool, drawn into it by some unreal force in my own fixation by its mesmeric surface. Without consciously doing so, I'd walk right into the pool, and only until the water shifted did I notice the water, which had been a placid and translucent green, turned dark and violent, churning viciously, rocking my body helplessly to and fro. The white mist changed to a dismal red and suddenly felt like a great encumbrance on my body as I tried to hold my footing in the sloshing waves. Rain started to fall, 
making the pool's level rise until it was up to my chest. The coffins behind me, engorged by the mammoth trees, seemed to groan in agony as their burdens expanded to nightmarish proportions within them, splintering the wood of which they were made. Beneath me, I began to hear a voice calling from the depths of the pool, and peering in, I saw what looked like a boy. My instinctual desire to extricate myself from the pool was overridden by my desire to save the child, so I plunged downward into the murk. I reached him, surprisingly. I grabbed the boy, who to my short-lived joy resembled Adam. I had found him, somehow trapped in this abysmal place. I held him to me with one arm and used the other to propel myself upward, all the while fighting the monstrous currents which battered me underwater as much as they did above it. When the realization that I wouldn't reach the surface before my lungs burst came to me, I found myself crying. Not for my own life, but for the boy who I couldn't save. Somehow, the tears felt warm against my body, as if they clung to my face instead of getting mixed within the Stygian waters around me. In a last moment of consciousness, I withdrew the flare gun from my pocket and extended my arm as far as it would go, kicking my legs to hopefully stay close to the surface for the gun to fire properly. I wasn't sure if it was going to work, honestly, but it was all that I had and thankfully, my finger pulled the trigger seconds after consciousness fully left me, and we sank downward into the abyssal death. I awoke in a hospital bed, with a nurse attending to me. She smiled and said she'd go get the doctor. When they returned, they were accompanied by another woman. She looked familiar, but I couldn't place her, either due to the drugs assuredly pumped into my system, or my own wariness at the half-remembered ordeal. Together, the doctor and woman informed me of what had happened. My absence from the search party had pretty much gone unnoticed until they'd given up for the night, and a sort of roll call was conducted to make sure everyone got back safely. When I hadn't made myself present, the people resumed their search, this time for me, which the woman admitted to being happy about, because she was Adam's mother and hadn't wanted to give up looking for him. Rather than splitting up again and risking more being lost, they surged through the trees together, collectively sweeping through the indarkened woods. At some point, perhaps an hour into the search, a flare shot exploded into the sky. Due to the downpour and the thick, visually obstructing treetops, they could only partially trace the path of the flare. They searched the areas from which they suspected it had been fired, but found nothing. Tired and drenched, talk of returning to their home started up, and some started to make their way back to the neighborhood. Before the last had gone, the woman, Adam's mother, heard crying. She approached the sound and found me holding her son in my arms, wailing, the flare gun at my side. Around us, washed up from a shallow grave, were other children. Adam was the only one alive among them. I was insensate, totally unresponsive, crying dumbly. Adam was unconscious, but not seriously harmed. We were both taken to the hospital, and I was placated to quietness along the way. When Adam awoke, he told the authorities that the old man, husband of Margaret, had taken him, hurt him, and left him among the others in a shallow pit, which he'd first uncovered to place Adam inside, then afterwards resealed. The rain had washed away the recently piled soil, which had not had time to harden and become overgrown, as had happened since the last time such an atrocity was committed. The old man was arrested, 
and after a few hours of questioning, admitted to being responsible for the seven missing children in the last 30 years. Adam fully recuperated and wanted to thank me. He was brought in and rushed to my bedside. He hugged me, thanked me relentlessly, and his mother did as well. The doctor informed me that I'd be fine and can return home in the evening. They all left letting me rest. I was happy to see Adam alive and well, but something troubled me. I realized that while he was the boy I'd seen in the water, he definitely was not the one who led me to the place where I'd fallen into the sinkhole. Later, once I returned home, I looked at pictures of the missing children. After scrolling through the pictures, I finally came across the first missing child, who had gone missing in the late 80s. Even though I hadn't got a good look at the child who led me to that sinkhole, I knew that this is the one. I also knew, somehow, that the last casket I'd come across in that extra mundane realm, the one obliterated by the tree, had been his. My Tales as a Vagrant by Anonymous In my younger days, just after high school, I was what most would consider a vagrant. No home to speak of, but not quite homeless either. Growing up poor in a poor, dying factory town assures few things, but most of the kids in my town knew and understood clearly that the only way to escape such a bleak place was to leave find work somewhere else, and don't come back unless you want to be trapped forever. And I was no exception to this understanding. It was the result of this desperate retreat from certain poverty that led me to work as a laborer in the pipeline industry. Grueling work, but decent pay. A fair start for one such as myself. After about three months of working, my foreman, who we will call Jay, discovered I was staying at a motel and would not have it. He was kind enough to invite me to stay with his family until I found an apartment, and I was grateful for his offer. Jay and his family were honest rural people who lived in an honest rural area. A house with a barn and a field surrounded by wooded hills, no neighbors, and one road in and out. Very similar to the houses I had seen and been around growing up. It was a great area and great company, and I was thankful for such a turn of my luck. The first evening I stayed there, Jay's wife got me situated in my room, and I got acquainted with everyone in the house over dinner. After our meal, I stepped outside for a cigarette and decided the tree line behind their barn would be the best area to smoke privately and inoffensively. The sun had set, and by the time I had stepped out of the house, the moon was high and full, keeping the valley I was in dully illuminated and casting the surrounding hills as dark shadows against the star-filled sky. A night that I think most would find peaceful, but as soon as my boots met the grass, that primal instinctive warning that a man gets sometimes began to slowly creep into my core. That alarm that tells you, something is not right here. Being young and dumb and brave of course, I shrugged it off and continued to the tree line, attempting to keep the growing feeling at bay. When I, at last, approached the shadowed tangle of trees and underbrush on the outskirts of their yard, I reached into my pocket, pulled out my pack of Marlboros, my matches, and struck it alight. As I brought the match to my cigarette, I saw it. Mere feet away from where I was standing, just barely within the trees was the stark and outstanding silhouette of something very large. It stood crouched and still had to be at least seven feet tall, large, 
pointed ears and a narrowly elongated snout. Its eyes glimmered. The, this was a weird infrared color you would see when animals reflect their eyes at night. Oh my god. Oh my god, there's a wolf. That's a wolf. Were my initial panic-stricken thoughts. It was during this processing that I realized there was no way this was a wolf, because wolves don't stand upright, and this creature was unmistakably on two legs. It was slouched low. One arm hung down, past its haunches, and the other was pressed firmly against the tree to the right of it. Broad shoulders, a savage posture. It didn't move. It didn't seem startled or threatened or afraid, but simply aware. It knew I saw it, and it knew that I knew. I wish I could say I did something. Anything. I wish I could say that I ran, or that I screamed, or I even moved. But I was truly frozen in fear, stuck in that spot, standing rigid as a statue with nothing but a quickly dying matchlight between me and whatever monstrous thing was in front of me. We locked gazes for what felt like hours, but was probably only just a moment. And as though the creature had decided it was done terrifying me, it straightened up, backed away slowly into the darkness of trees, and just dissipated. No sound, not a broken twig or rustled leaf to be heard. As soon as my legs allowed me, I ran like hell back to the safety of Jay's house, slammed the door behind me, and was met with a look of concern from my foreman and his wife, who were watching TV in the living room. There's something out there. It was the only thing I could gasp out. Jay exchanged a glance with his wife and looked back towards me. Boy, if you're going to stay here, you need to understand that there are things out in the woods that you best pay no attention to. He said it so nonchalantly, like he was talking about last night's football game. You hear a strange noise, you ignore it. You see a strange shadow, you ignore it. And if you get a strange feeling, you come inside and forget you felt it. There are things out there we just don't understand. But we have to respect it because it's their land and we just live here. It's been 15 years since my encounter with that creature in the woods, and I still think about it all the time. And though I stayed with Jay and his family for another three weeks after that, I never felt uneasy on his property again. That feeling, it never truly left. But the warning, it was very clear. I will never go out to the woods at night unless I absolutely have no other choice. Once you know what's out there, you never see things the same again. I know this might seem far-fetched, and I know that many won't believe what I'm saying, but this story is one that is true, and one that I just had to share with the show. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright strange outdoors horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to slap that like button like it owes you some money. Subscribe if you're new and turn on notifications so you don't miss a new episode. I upload them nearly every single day. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium, you can download your favorite Swamp Dweller scaries and take them wherever you go. You can download them for free from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit yours at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. You can also submit them on reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I would love to see your story and share it with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going. Do keep in mind though, I get sent plenty of stories every single week, so it does take some time to get around to them. But patience is always key. 
If you made it all the way to the end, be sure to comment the code word Leaping Joe Rogan to confuse anybody who hasn't made it to the end, and anybody who makes the funniest comment will be pinned on the top. Thank you guys, as always, for supporting the swamp the way you do. I'm a bit busy now, like I said, I'm not feeling too good. I'm gonna go lay down, maybe slap up some Leaping Joe Rogans real quick, and I'll see you guys soon with another creepy episode.